If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, uh, cruise on over to Exodus chapter 16. We're experimenting with a soundtrack today to the, you know how those narrated Bibles, they have music in the background. Exodus chapter 16, that's our text. Exodus chapter 16, the topic, the Israelites are astonished by the appearance of manna to feed them. The title of our message, Manna Mia. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for our morning thus far. What a joy it is to open our hearts to worship you. Thank you for giving us the strength and the desire to do that. Now we want to sit quietly before you and hear your word taught by the application of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Lord, you see between the soul and the spirit and the deepest part of us. Speak to us there. Minister to us there. Use this text. In Jesus' name we pray. And all those who agreed said, amen. On April 5th, 1887, Ann Sullivan made a breakthrough with her blind and deaf pupil, Helen Keller, when she taught her the meaning of the word water spelled out in the manual alphabet. When she was just 19 months old, an unknown disease left Helen deaf and blind. She became an unruly child who often lashed out in anger at her inability to communicate and her failure to comprehend the world around her. Ann Sullivan, a teacher at the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston, was hired to tutor Helen. Sullivan spelled words into Helen's hand and tried to help her connect letters and words and objects' names. Helen memorized words, but failed to understand that they had any meaning. On April 5th, 1887, Anne took Helen to an old pump house. She put Helen's hand under the stream and began spelling water into her palm, at first slowly, then more quickly. In a breakthrough moment, Helen suddenly understood that everything had a name. She would later write in her biography, as the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then more rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that water meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. Now, Ann Sullivan broke through to Helen Keller. I suggest to you that God needed to break through to the Israelites. There were things about his nature that they just had not yet comprehended. Think about it. Moses appeared before Pharaoh to speak for God, saying, let my people go. The Israelites witnessed God perform 10 signs. He turned water into blood, he multiplied frogs, he multiplied lice, he multiplied flies, he diseased livestock, he brought boils upon men and animals, hail fell, killing all that were in the open fields, he brought a plague of locusts, and there was oppressive darkness for three days. At the last, the angel of the Lord killed the firstborn who were not covered by the blood of a sacrificed lamb. This series of plagues upon Egypt was followed by the parting and the unparting of the Red Sea, which drowned the entire Egyptian army. If you're trying to communicate omnipotence, you've surely uh, succeeded. 
But what about other attributes like, as we read in Psalm 103, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy? (laughs) Providing bread from heaven to a hungry people is going to be an object lesson in those attributes of God. And it doesn't end with providing bread in the wilderness for Israel. Bread from heaven is a favorite theme of Jesus in order to convey his mission as savior of the world. He said of himself, I am the bread of life and I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He identified the bread that we're gonna read about today, the manna, as foreshadowing and pointing to him in a very wonderful spiritual sense. And so let's think about our daily bread as we work through the story about the manna. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, daily bread is your sustenance as you journey homeward. And number two, daily bread is your testimony as you journey homeward. Let's take a look at our sustenance first in verses one through 31. Bruce Wayne of Tiffin, Ohio, not Bruce Wayne of Gotham City, set his sights on crushing the previous record of 425 consecutive days of eating at Chipotle. He surpassed the record December 30th, 2017. The January article I read indicated he was going to continue eating at Chipotle indefinitely. Could you eat at the same place every day? Let's take it farther. What about eating the same meal every day? The truth is I could. I could eat spaghetti every day. There's no doubt in my mind I could do that. When I was a kid, a young child, it was imprinted on me because my dad had a failed Italian restaurant and we did eat spaghetti every day because when, you, when your Italian restaurant fails, what you have left over is a lot of pasta and a lot of marinara sauce and um, I got pretty acclimated to pasta back then, but I could do it. Uh, I, I, in fact, I wanna do it and, and I have to stop myself. But believe it or not, it is somewhat trendy to eat the same food every day Celebrities like Jennifer Gardner and Eva Mendes claim to eat the same foods every day. Regular people are claiming extreme weight loss while maintaining their health by eating the same foods every day. And the added benefit is that you save hundreds of dollars because your pantry is so small. You only have to buy the same thing over and over again. Now, the Israelites were about to be introduced to a new food, a new diet, really, that they would eat every day for the next 40 years. Manna would be their staple. By the way, I have to share this with you. Rabbinical literature claims that manna produced no waste, quote, encapsulating its eaters' nutritional needs so precisely that after the body absorbed what it needed, there was nothing left. None of them needed to answer nature's call for 40 years. I don't know if I, now that's not in the Bible, that's a rabbinical, <laughs> that's rabbinical literature, but I'm all for that. Give me that all day, I'll say. Verse one, and they journeyed from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Whatever food they had brought with them into the wilderness, it was now six weeks into their journey provisions were depleted. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Psalm 133 says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The Israelites were definitely united, but it certainly wasn't good and pleasant in this situation. Theirs was a unity that caused division. 
Now, it may seem obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Don't join others in unity that causes division. Uh, Ephesians 4.3 exhorts us, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Sometimes unity and peace are more important than having our own way in a situation. Verse three, and the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They believed God was going to kill them. I think we'd agree that their knowledge of the nature of God was somewhat limited. And so everything that they had seen up to this point led them to the conclusion that the God they were following was about to murder them. Now, since they believed God was going to kill them, they thought they'd have been better off dying in Egypt. At least there, they would have gotten a last meal. What would you choose as your last meal? While you're thinking, here are a few of the last meals death row inmates requested. 2009, Bobby Wayne Woods requested two chicken fried steaks, two fried chicken breasts, three pork chops, two burgers, four slices of bread, a half pound of French fried potatoes, half pound of onion rings, chocolate cake, two pitchers of milk. It's like what they give you on Survivor when you win the challenge, and then you're sad about it afterwards. In 1982, Velma Barfield requested cheese doodles and a Coke. In 1963, Victor Figur requested a single olive no one knows what that's about. In 1990, James Edward Smith requested dirt in order to perform a voodoo ritual. Since it wasn't on the approved menu, they substituted yogurt. <laughs> now, that's, that's disappointing. You're going to put yourself in a, in a state of near death, and they give you yogurt, which I guess could kill you over time. But anyway, I would request spaghetti, of course, several plates each with a different sauce, basil pesto on one, some uh, balsamic on another, a marinara sauce, those kinds of things. Topo Chico sparkling water to drink. If you haven't tried that, you need to. A little shot of espresso at the end. Don't forget the cannoli. That would be me. The Israelites had an inflated view of their previous conditions. When they were enslaved by Egypt, were they really coming home each day to overflowing pots of meat and all the fresh bread they could eat? I don't think so. Now, if you're saved, you have power over Satan and sin. You'll not be subject to what the Bible calls the second death. Uh, you'll live forever in a perfect glorified body in a perfect heaven. Don't exaggerate how good you had it before you were saved just because the road homeward is perilous. It's a favorite trick of the devil to make you remember fondly some things that you gave up in the world, and now you're struggling for Jesus. Paul the Apostle would say, have you shed blood yet? I love that. It's one of my favorite things that Paul talks about. He says, he says you're complaining, but have you, have you actually shed blood? And most of the Christians, even that he was writing to, would have to say no. But even if you have, you are always better off with Jesus than you were in the world, having avoided the second death, which is eternal separation and conscious torment. And so don't remember the world fondly. It really wasn't that great. You've been delivered from it, and you don't need to go back to it. 
Verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, those of you who are deeper into fitness or maybe you're training for a a marathon, let's say, do you not put yourself on a different diet to perform at your best? And so God's diet was going to sustain them physically, of course, but it could also bring out their spiritual best because it was going to involve some rules and restrictions. Verse five, and it shall be on the sixth day They shall prepare what they bring in and shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, we already know why before we're told, because the seventh day was the Sabbath. But I'm going to show you in just a moment that the Israelites knew nothing about the Sabbath until this moment. And so let's read ahead. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now Moses let them know that by complaining against he and Aaron, they were really complaining against God. Two things stand out about that. First, I say good for Moses in that he seemed to take it in stride rather than taking it personally. And second, it's good to call your behavior what it really is. You and I must learn to not take everything so personally. Don't get me wrong, people do attack you, but when they're attacking God through you, just keep calm and carry on. And it's always a good thing to just say what something is. Uh, these children of Israel, they're complaining against Moses saying, you guys are bad leaders. And Moses said, hey, that is not the point at all. The point is that you're actually complaining against God. Uh, You could apply this to marriages. Oh, it's my husband. Oh, it's my wife. No, actually, it's God that you're complaining against. If you don't have any real grounds for divorce and remarriage, then your complaint is with God. And so sometimes... It will help us as Christians to get a handle on what we're going through to actually identify what it is that we're doing and not to put some smoke screen around it. And then Moses spoke to Aaron, verse nine, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The pillar of cloud by day and by fire by night was guiding them. It was that visible manifestation of God. From this day forward, it would always be cloudy with a chance of breadfall because uh, that was gonna happen for the next 40 years. Verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is fascinating to me. I want you to notice that even though what they did was wrong, we could call it sin, even though it was a complaint, God gave them what they asked for. He gave them much more than they asked for in a way that would help them grow if they received it. Contrary to our way of thinking, God can bless when you are disobedient and he can withhold when you are obedient. We have the sort of an innate understanding 
that if somebody does something wrong, they should be punished, and if they do something right, they should be rewarded. And then we enter into the Christian life and you find mercifully, sometimes you do what is wrong and God still blesses you. It's grace, and it's a wonderful thing. We don't sin that grace might abound. It's not an excuse. We don't say, well, I don't care you know, about what I'm going to do because God will bless me anyway. That's not the point. But the point is, and it's a real point, God can bless you during your times of disobedience. And it's also true that when you're really walking with God, you're strong with the Lord, you're your devotions, you're going to church, you're serving, you're struggling with sin, not in any habitual sin, that many times you find that your life is imperiled. And you're thinking, Lord, why aren't you blessing me? And the Lord in that situation says, my grace is sufficient for you. So God has sufficient grace when you're blowing it. And like he told the apostle Paul when he prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, he has sufficient grace when you are having a trial. And so this is a great study in grace uh, and, and entering into that dimension of the relationship that we have with the Lord. And remember, what we're doing here is we're seeing that God is using this episode to reveal new things about himself to the children of Israel that they hadn't seen before. They'd seen him do 10 mighty plagues. They'd seen him destroy the Egyptian army. And it led them to a point in their thinking that he was gonna kill them And so now he is trying to write in their hands, as it were, and get them to understand other things about him. Verse 13, so it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. Now, they were going to get quail one more time after this. Uh, This kind of reads like a last meal of meat before they went on the manna diet. Those of you who diet, again, not making fun of you, I've dieted before, um, uh, you, you always have that last meal, right? It's like, I'm gonna start, I, I know how many times people have said to me or I've heard it said, well, I'm gonna start my diet tomorrow. And uh, seriously, they mean it. Tomorrow morning, Monday, I'm gonna get up and do Adkins or South Beach or you know, Weight Watchers or whatever. And that's why right now we're headed to Figaro's because I'm just gonna chow down like crazy. I'm gonna bloat myself out. They're gonna have to float me out of that place and then tomorrow everything will start new. And so that's what this, God says, hey, here's some meat, get, get your fill of meat, because tomorrow starts the manna regimen. And so verse 14, and when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. The word manna means, what is it? It reminds me of it's it ice cream. Have you guys had it's it? You know what I'm talking about? Here's the story. In 1928, George Whitney placed a scoop of creamy vanilla ice cream between two freshly baked large old-fashioned oatmeal cookies. Then he dipped the sandwich into fine dark chocolate. The delicious combination of savory sweetness was declared by all to be it. People just say, man, that's it. And that's the name. It's it. So manna, what is it? So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, we're going to be told in verse 31, it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Numbers chapter 11 states that manna's appearance was like bedelium, which is a resin. And Psalm 78 refers to manna as grain from heaven 
and the next verse calls it the bread of angels. And so we get a little bit of description about manna. Then in verse 16, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded, let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. If you don't know what an omer is, drop down to verse 36, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. And so now you've got that under your belt. <laughs> I want to make up one of those magnetic signs that gives Jewish measurements, you know? You know how you have ounces to kilogram or whatever it is on your, you know, because I can't do the math, uh, but uh, we do one in, in, uh, in Hebrew. Here's a quote about the omer that this makes it even clearer, I'm sure. In traditional Jewish standards of measurement, the omer is equivalent to the capacity of 43 eggs, or what is also known as one-tenth of an ephah. In a dry weight, the omer weighed between one and a half and 1.7 kilograms, and so it's about 60 ounces if I'm doing my math correctly. So it's the volume of about 43 eggs. Uh, if you had something that you could put 43 eggs in. See, then I always think, wh whose eggs? Ostrich eggs, quail eggs, <laughs> duck eggs. I mean, what kind of egg? And this is where you get into haggling in the marketplace, right? You can hey, I'll take an omer, and a guy comes out with something like this. You go, wait a minute. You can't get 43 eggs in there. Oh, yes, you can if they're lizard eggs, you know, and stuff. So anyway, the, then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. This is a miracle within the miracle. Whatever quantity you gathered, when you measured it in your tent, you found that it, uh, you had just as many omers as you needed for the consumption of your family. So if you thought you had more, you didn't. If you thought you had too little, you didn't. It all kind of worked itself out while you were weighing it out. Verse 19, and Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. Moses was very angry with them. Now, Moses could be cranky. Even though he was, and I quote, very meek above all the men which are upon the face of the earth, his temper would eventually get him into trouble. Now, this passage isn't really teaching this, but you should not overlook what you consider to be small sins because they can suddenly overtake you. Guys, I'll talk to you because we will understand this. You, you really can't use as an excuse, that's the way I am. That's the problem. The way you are is the problem. And so Moses couldn't say, well, that's the way I am. I get angry every now and then, but you know, I'm the meekest man that ever lived. He's gonna get so angry towards the end of his life here that God's gonna say, hey, you ruined some things and I can't let you go into the promised land. And so whatever it is you would say to me today, and I to you, hey, that's the way I am. Uh, that's the way God wants to work on you. He wants to change that. Gals, there may be two or three of you that that applies to as well, but I'm trying to stay in good graces with you. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. Apologies to those who aren't morning people. Manna had to be gathered early, or you'd have no food to sustain you. Verse 22 so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each person, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Why gather twice as much? Well, it's because the seventh day was the Sabbath, except that until that moment, the seventh day wasn't the Sabbath. 
Had the Israelites been keeping the Sabbath throughout their generations, they would have not needed any explanation in verse five to gather twice as much on the sixth day. They'd have known gathering would have been prohibited as a uh, type of work on the seventh day. Nowhere in the Old Testament prior to this did anyone keep the Sabbath. Even Sabbatarians will concede this point. A Sabbatarian is a person who keeps the Sabbath. And by keeping the Sabbath, I mean a person who says you must worship on the Sabbath day, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Honest Sabbatarians will admit that the Bible does not teach anywhere before this that you must keep the Sabbath. They say, though, that since God rested on the seventh day, it, it establishes a pattern that all men should follow. But that is an assumption, and it is an argument from silence at best. God did not command man to rest on the seventh day. In none of his instructions to any of the patriarchs does he ever tell any of them to keep the Sabbath. Abraham, father of the Jewish race, God is clear about some things. Circumcision, for example, is going to be the sign of the covenant. He never mentions at all to Abraham that he should keep the Sabbath. Never talks about the seventh day at all with him or any of the other patriarchs. Nothing about the Sabbath, not until this exodus. So verse 23, he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will, bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Verse 23 is the very first occurrence of the word Sabbath in the Bible. This was all brand new. This is orientation to the Sabbath. And if you understand the theme that we're developing this morning, that God is showing himself gracious and merciful and benevolent to his people, this is tremendous. God is saying, guys, you know, when you were slaves in Egypt, you didn't have a day off. You had to work for the Egyptians and then work your own fields, and it was, it was terrifying. But here in the wilderness, you're gonna have a whole day off where there's no work to be done. Just gather twice as much on Saturday. We're gonna call it the Sabbath. And when I give you the law here in a little while, we're gonna codify it and, and it's gonna become an ordinance between me and Israel forever. And so this would be tremendous. Uh, I remember it was a big deal when I was a kid uh, because my dad had a really solid work ethic. He owned a, an auto shop and he were, we worked six days a week, and we had Sunday off. Um, and the only reason we didn't work Sunday is because most other people wouldn't bring in their cars on Sunday, you know, that's the only, but my dad, I mean, he worked. Finally, we got half a day Saturday off, and then finally, we got Saturday off. It was like, you know, uh, some, something great had happened. And so, you know, God says, hey, you guys are gonna have an, an entire day to just rest, gather your food, boil it, bake it, and just kick back and relax because he's showing them what he is, who he is uh, in another way in, than he's been showing them through his plagues and all of that other stuff. And so it happened, uh, verse 27, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather and they found none. No Jew would have gone out that day if they had been keeping the Sabbath prior to this. They would have known that the Sabbath was holy 
and they would not have gone out. And so verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out on his place on the seventh day. I belabor the point by saying it, but this is when God gave Israel the Sabbath. It was and it is part of God's covenant with Israel. So the people rested on the seventh day. Gentiles were never commanded to keep the Sabbath. Nine of the 10 commandments are repeated in the New Testament as instructions in righteousness for the church. The only one that is not repeated, you guessed it, the Sabbath. In fact, we are warned to not be subject to days and rituals, which were a mere shadow of the reality that we have now in Jesus. If you want to worship on Saturday, you're free to do that. Our whole church, we could get together and take a vote and say, Sunday isn't really working for us anymore. How about we have services on Monday? And we could do that. Nobody would be upset as far as righteousness. But when a person steps forward and says, well, actually, you must worship on Saturday or you must worship on Sunday, now you've entered into legalism and you're saying something that the Bible does not say. The Sabbath is an ordinance between God and Israel forever. It has nothing to do with the Gentiles, uh, and you see that it was established with Israel right here for the first time. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I found this interesting quote by Charles Spurgeon. According to the Apocrypha, which is not to be received as scripture, but still is often valuable, each man tasted the manna according to his own liking. There was something about it that enabled the mouth to give it its own flavor. And so it tasted like spaghetti generally. So <laughs> the Israelites could see in this provision things like God's providence and his mercy and his tenderness and his compassion. They could see many attributes of God that they had not previously been made aware of. He wasn't just omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. There's a fourth omni, it's omnibenevolent. The word omnibenevolent comes from the Latin word omni, meaning all, and benevolent, meaning good or charitable. When we say that God is omnibenevolent, we're saying that God is absolutely good and that no action or motive or thought or feeling of his is not absolutely purely good. He is all good. And so this is something that he wants to share with them. Uh, they think, remember, that he's brought them out there to kill them, and he says, no, I have brought you out here for your good to bring you into a good land. Among all the other things manna was for them, its appearance could have served as a breakthrough moment. Hopefully, you and I have had such moments when you are overwhelmed by the grace of God. Now, verse 32 through 36, your bread is a testimony as you journey homeward. Speaking of bread generally, Bowdoin's sourdough bread, unique tangy taste and chewy center, has been a hit with San Francisco residents since the bakery first opened in 1849. A big part of the brand's success has been due to its unyielding consistency, a feat accomplished because the company is still using the same yeast culture that Isidore Bowdoin collected 160 years ago. So they have the, uh, the original sourdough starter from 160 years ago. It's a running joke among pensieros that all sourdough bread everywhere has molecules from the Garden of Eden. 
It all comes from that initial starter. But it's kind of, in San Francisco, it does come from a 160-year-old starter. Now, manna wouldn't last overnight unless it was six-day manna. But one particular manna was going to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant and would be there for centuries as a testimony. So verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it. Lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now, the testimony here seems to be a reference either to the Ark of the Covenant or to the entire tabernacle that housed the Ark and the other symbolic furnishings. The tabernacle plans had not yet been given, so this is commentary by Moses on something that would occur. Once they had the tabernacle, they were to put an omer of... uh, manna in a jar inside the Ark of the Covenant, and he said it is a testimony about what God did to sustain the Israelites. Verse 35, and the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, that's a long time to eat something that isn't spaghetti. It reminds me of the lembus bread of the elves in the Tolkien stories. At one point, Frodo uh, in the two towers asked Sam for an inventory of their provisions, and Sam says, look, lembus bread, and oh, more lembus bread. But actually, it's a tremendous resource because just a tiny bit of it will keep a, a man going for days and days and days. Of course, the hobbits eat it by the you know, pound. You know, They're just hungry all the time for breakfast and second breakfast and all that kind of stuff. But, but it's probably something Tolkien got Uh, from the idea of manna in the Old Testament. Now, the Israelites did have different ways of preparing manna. We read earlier it could be baked or boiled. Manna recipes were made famous by Keith Green in his song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. Remember that song? How many of you are familiar with Keith Green, the Christian artist? You need to, uh, if if you've never listened to Keith Green, you need to. Uh, He had this song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, and he spoke about manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, Filet of manna, manna patty, and banana bread. Banana bread is my favorite. I can hardly pronounce it, but it must be something great. Their food was part of their testimony. Your food is part of your testimony because Jesus is your spiritual manna. Just as God provided manna to the Israelites to save them from starvation, he has provided Jesus Christ for salvation. The manna temporarily saved the Israelites from physical death The spiritual manna permanently saves us from eternal death. Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Speaking of himself, he said, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And so it was a picture, a foreshadowing that the Jews could look at and say, oh, the manna that came down from heaven every day. Jesus came down from heaven to earth and is the spiritual food that saves us not from starvation, but unto salvation. When you and I live according to God's word, when it is our standard of measure, our absolute rule of life, it gives the world a testimony that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Whenever you're in a situation where you do something because it's God-honoring, because it's righteous, because the Bible tells you so, 
you are giving a testimony that you do not live the way the world lives by its bread and its standards, but by bread that the Lord gives you. Like Jesus, we show we have food to eat of which the non-believer does not know our food being to do the will of God. And so whether your go-to meal is spaghetti or something else, Jesus is your go-to for spiritual sustenance. When his word is your standard, when you do his will, you give testimony to his grace, your testimony can strengthen other believers, and it can challenge non-believers by showing he who believes in Jesus has everlasting life. That is another phrase that Jesus spoke in that passage about the bread from heaven. He says, ultimately, it is missional in that it preaches Christ. And so when you and I live for the Lord, just the basic Christian life, we're living by a bread that the world doesn't have, and we're showing them that there's a spiritual nutrition that they lack. Adopt and maintain a word-based diet. Someone asks you how you eat, tell them you're a manna eater. Let's have a word of prayer.